Well, I would invite you this morning to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. And it is Luke chapter 1. I think last Sunday I said two and I meant one. I'm saying one and I mean one this time. Um, we'll continue our series this morning called The Songs of Christmas, focusing on the four songs that ring out in the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Last Sunday we did the song of Zechariah. This Sunday we are looking at the song of Mary. And so if you'll turn uh, again to the first chapter of Luke, we will begin at verse 46. I believe it starts on page 1017, 1017, on the Bibles that are in your pews. I'm going to read to you now the song of Mary. I'm going to give you the context of it after we finish uh, looking at it together. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. And again we say, thanks be to God. You probably do know that the occasion for Mary's song is a visit with her sister Elizabeth. And... Um, or cousin, sorry, that's, yeah, cousin, right, thank you, appreciate that. One of the great things about preaching here is I have on-the-fly correction in case I screw it up, <laughs> but only when they're really confident about it. <laughs> so Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, and her cousin Mary comes to visit. There is this glorious moment then, the two of them meeting together, the, the old woman who was barren and now pregnant, talking with her cousin, the pregnant virgin. Mary walks in and greets her. Verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. John the Baptist, still a baby in the womb, gets excited and leaps for joy. Can babies have faith? Yes, they can. Can we measure it? Absolutely not. <laughs> How much more can I tell you about it? Yeah, that's really about it. Elizabeth puts God's blessing on her, on her cousin and Mary's song is a response to that declaration, blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. So let's talk a moment about that blessing, shall we? Concerning this terminology, you might know, it's more common to hear it in Roman Catholic circles, the Blessed Virgin Mary, which the title of blessing comes from this passage, blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then in, in Mary's own song, she says, um, sorry, I'm looking at the wrong, I'm looking at Zechariah's. There we go. Um, He's looked on the humble estate of His servant. Behold, now all generations will call Me blessed. There it is again. 
So here's what we can say from that. I, I want to address this. I mean, when you, when you heard I was preaching on the Song of Mary, when you saw it in your bulletin, you probably wondered, is he going to address some of the, uh, the Marian doctrine in Roman Catholicism? Rather than save that to the end and keep you in suspense, I'm just going to deal with it at the front end of the sermon. So here's what we can say from the text. Mary is unique. No one else carried the Son of God in her womb. And if you're familiar with the biblical narrative about angelic announcements, you, were, you might have been prepared for a different outcome. An outcome that is far more consistent both before the announcement to Mary by the angel Gabriel and afterward. What I mean is if you think back in the Old Testament, Sarah is told she's going to have a baby in her old age. She laughs and is chastised for it. Numbers 20, God tells Moses, because you didn't believe my words, you will not be the one to lead these people into the promised land. After Mary, of course, Zechariah is told that he'll be a father. He doubts and is rendered mute until the child is born. There's a pattern in God's revelation, interestingly, particularly by revelation of angelic announcement, of doubt or of objection. Think of Moses before the burning bush, the very voice of God. And that is often, though not always, met with specific judgment. Mary is one of the few people in the entire Bible who when she hears what God will do, asks a question. How can this be since I am a virgin? She asks the question. She does not challenge the word. She doesn't mock it. She doesn't doubt it. But she does admit some confusion. There is, this might be a whole other sermon, but I'll just, I'll just put it in here. There is a big difference between asking questions and having doubts. Okay? Doubts can be rooted in the soil of skepticism where they become objections to what God has said. Questions begin in the soil of I don't understand and need help. Big difference between those two orientations toward a confusion, concern, or unbelief. Now, so Mary is unique because she simply says, be it unto me according to your word. She's also unique because she is, in a very real sense, the mother of God. Not that she becomes before God in any sense, but she bore the Son of God. But a lot of the Romanist teaching that is built up around Mary since then, let's say, that she had a sinless life, that she had no other children, that she was perpetually a virgin, that she did not die but ascended into heaven herself, that she participates in Christ's work of redemption, that she hears prayers and serves as a mediator between Christ and men. None of these have any New Testament warrant. In fact, the New Testament seems to caution against some of these. Let's look at them. Mary was not sinless, I submit to you, because she celebrated the good news of her Savior. Luke chapter 1, verse 47. If we can go there now. Luke chapter 1, verse 47. She says, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So Mary needed saving. Second, Luke tells us that right after, I mean later in the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us that after Jesus had spoken to a particular crowd of people, one woman called out to him with these words, Luke eleven twenty seven. 27. 
She said, uh, as he said these things, the woman in the crowd raised her voice and said, Blessed, oh, there's that blessing terminology again. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nurse. Now, given what we already know about blessing on Mary in Luke 1, one thinks Jesus might have said, correct. I mean, it's almost as if she heard this song, the Magnificat. All generations shall call me blessed. Here's this woman doing just that. And Jesus says in verse 28, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Another time, Jesus was told in Luke 8 that his mother and his brothers came to him and couldn't reach him because of the crowd. He was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. And we read in verse 21, he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. How interesting it is that in the context of Jesus's adult ministry, when Mary comes up, Jesus tends to direct people away from her and toward the Word of God. I would, I would offer the same to you this morning. That my goal as a pastor and as a minister of the Word is to direct your attention to that Word and that Mary would have me do nothing more or less. And so I want to present, uh, offer to you at least three things we learn in the Song of Mary. First, that God lifts up the humble. Second, that He knocks down the proud. Third, that He keeps His promises. These are basically the three themes that stretch across the nine-verse song, or ten-verse, excuse me. First, so first, God lifts up the humble. Beginning in verse 46, Mary begins by magnifying the Lord. Right? She, she says, rather, my soul magnifies the Lord. How does a soul magnify God? Well, by talking, by speaking. By singing praises. And what is most magnificent and glorious in Mary's song is how delightfully unspecific it is. Here's what I mean. Throughout church history, Christians have sung what we call the Magnificat, Mary's song. Called so because in Latin that's the first word. Uh, it's not the first word, it's the third word in English, my soul magnifies. But in Latin, the sentence starts off with that with that magnify word, magnificat. And so it is called. And it's been chanted and sung down through church history. Now I simply offer to you, just for fun, a little thought exercise. If there was a line in there about uh, the Son of God has been placed into my womb, that would get a little awkward for us to sing. <laughs> right? That would just seem kind of weird. Right? And, but what's weirder, I think, is that Mary leaves that out. What I mean is that Mary breaks into Glad's song. We might be expecting her to sing something like, He's taken a virgin and blessed her by making the mother of the Lord of Israel. That would fit well. I'm expecting her to sing about what the Lord's done specifically for her, but that's not what's to be found. What we find are grand and glorious words of praise that could be sung by virtually anyone any Christian, in many different kinds of circumstances. You see, the glory of Mary's song is that she wanted to magnify the Lord, not her own position as the mother of the Son of God. This is a good reminder for us. Mary's blessing was an opportunity for Mary to proclaim the greatness of the God who had blessed her. Her whole aim in this song seems to be, what has happened to me? is yet more evidence of what kind of God this is. 
And actually, that's been the theme of a lot of the last few sermons, that, that your own testimony should be shaped by that uh, reality. What has happened to me is evidence of what kind of God I serve. So back to our first point. The first point of the sermon, He lifts up the humble. He lifts up the humble is the first point. Look at verse 48. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. How does God do that? Well, three ways. These are, these are three things within this first point. He preserves her story of blessing. He gives her mercy. And He guides the generations. So we'll, look at, we'll look at each one of these in turn. First, He preserves the story of blessing. Uh, verse 48 again. For behold, from now on, all generations will call Me blessed. Mary understood this moment as the moment when all future generations would continue saying about her what Elizabeth had said about her. And indeed, she was right. To that extent, Blessed Virgin Mary is a perfectly accurate way to describe her. However, to be consistent, I think that my Romanist friend should also speak of Blessed Patriarch Jacob, Blessed Father Abraham, Blessed King David, Blessed Savior Jesus, and Blessed Apostle Paul. They don't tend to speak that way. I think there's a reason for that. But Mary says here that future generations will call her blessed. Why? Because she is further proof that God lifts up the humble, something He's been doing all along. But in a broken and sinful world where, look, it often looks like the wicked are the ones getting lifted up and exalted. It often looks like the arrogant and proud are the ones getting elected. It often looks like the wicked have the favor. Weary souls cry out for reassurances that God lifts up the humble. And so yes, my dear Protestant brothers and sisters, children of the Reformation that we are, we will indeed call Mary, the mother of Jesus, blessed from now on throughout all our generations because she is a wonderful example of the goodness of God. Okay, so, so that's the story that's preserved throughout the generations, that God has been good to her. And then look at verse 49. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. The Holy One has mercy. The whole story of the Bible after Genesis 3 can be seen as an answer to one question, and that is, how shall we find mercy from this holy God? Man's answer to that question in our sinful flesh has been to downplay holiness into, well, there are any number of ways to do it. I think the most common way is to minimize the importance of obedience. Or to downplay mercy in order to ensure obedience. Neither one works, by the way. The Gospel is that the mighty God, whose name is holy, has mercy on those who fear Him. They go together. We must understand this. Mercy is not a reduction of holiness. And holiness does not demand a constantly conditional mercy. Mary, who had come, as it were, face to face with the blinding angelic glory, who has the hope of every nation literally inside of her, 
knows she knows that the holy God has indeed been merciful. In fact, the gospel we preach and share and confess and sing and feast on at the table is that there's a union between holiness and mercy. The Son of God, the Holy Son of God, took on flesh, died and rose again, that we might forever know both the deep holiness and the deep mercy of our God. The third way He lifts up the humble, which is our first point, He guides generations. Look at verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. God has always given promises through the generations of His people. It's something He likes to do. Probably because the Lord knows that one of His most well-sharpened instruments for cultivating humility, right? this is what this is, first point is about, he, he lifts up the humble, and one of God's favorite instruments for cultivating humility is parenthood. Right? And family. Parenthood and family. Children are great instruments to cultivate and bring about humility. Family is a great instrument of humility. Right? Oh, you got to come back home. You got to sit around the table on Christmas Day. You got to look those people in the eye. That can be very humbling. Because they've always known you. But I also think we are reminded here of a biblical reality that God delights to work through the generations over the course of history. Amen. Amen. We like to think, we tend to think of each generation as like a pond. Okay? So, so human history is this expansive piece, acres and acres of property that has several nice little fishing ponds. Okay? And, and so, so, you know, you come to the first, here's the boomer pond, right? <laughs> and the houses around it are pretty nice. Over there is your generation X pond. The music is depressing. Okay? Over and loud. Over there is your millennial pond, right? There's your Gen Z pond. Most of the water is melted snowflakes. That's just a joke. <laughs> okay? We tend to separate it out into ponds in our head. Each generation is like its own little partitioned off bit. In reality, the generations are more like a long flowing river. You are downstream from your ancestors, always. You carry with you their triumphs, their failures, their virtues, their temptations. Now, you must cut your own path. Yes, you must. But you are not just a clean slate that enters into the world untouched, unaffected by those who came before you. This causes some parents to despair because the older you get, the greater sense you have of your sin, first of all, and then the thought that someone else would have to carry a burden that to you keeps growing as you get older is really sobering. But Mary's words here offer you great encouragement because mercy is what gets the priority. Look at verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. What this means is that your children are not slaves to your failures and shortcomings. Your children are not doomed to repeat all of your mistakes, but God lifts up the humble. In other words, if we want to think of it as a river, and I think you should, turning the tide yeah, begins with you and your repentance. If you perceive a sin pattern in your life, 
And especially if you don't perceive a sin pattern in your life, there's a pretty good chance it's going to show up in your kids. Perfection cannot come from you. You can't give that to them. But you can model repentance and sanctification. Your child, mom and dad, does not need a perfect parent. They need a faithful and repentant parent who is a display of the mercy and kindness and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your child's testimony will not be mom and dad were perfect or, or even you know, something closely aligning thereunto. Mom and dad really had it all together. But by God's kindness, they will say, my mom and dad are proof that God keeps His promises. God keeps His promises to faithful and repentant people. Mercy gets the priority. Why does God do this? Why does God work this way? So that we might know who He is. That is why God, that is why God lifts up the humble. So that when people see the humble lifted up, they know what kind of God they serve. Next point in the sermon, God knocks down the proud. God knocks down the proud for the same reason, by the way, so that we might know who He is. Mary sings in verse 51, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Immediately what came to my mind when I read that was Tower of Babel. They had proud thoughts in their hearts, right? To build a tower to the heavens. Genesis 11 verse 3 says they used bitumen for mortar, which would have been a waterproofing agent. God had just flooded the earth recently. Promise never to do it again. And then some descendants of Noah say, yeah, we're not taking our chances with that God. We're going to build a waterproof tower that will reach to the heavens so we never again have to live under His threat. And God, verse 5, comes down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. That language is intentional. It's meant to be a joke. That is, they're busy building a tower that reaches to heaven. And God of heaven has to bend over to see it. Right? He came down. God has to come downstairs in order to see this mighty heavenly tower. Right? Oh, there it is. I almost missed it. And what happens? Well, they're scattered. This reminds us of a reality God has proven time and again. Scattered people do not accomplish much. Great accomplishments in history have gone well together with unity of vision and a people bound together. A people unified under a a banner of truth, say the truth of the Gospel, can do great things for the kingdom. But a people united by their pride will temporarily be prosperous and then they will be scattered. Verse 52, He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Once again, God talks about the civil realm and earthly authorities quite a lot throughout His Word. Not because there's no spiritual warfare in the world, but because a great deal of spiritual warfare is manifested in the exercises of earthly authority. One of the ways that God delights to display His kingship, as I said earlier, is by reminding us that He is not a respecter of persons. He is not impressed by crowns or offices or titles. 
He can bless His people with a King Josiah. He can bless His people with a King Herod. He can bless His people with a Cyrus, if you know anything about that mentioned in Isaiah. He can cause Nebuchadnezzar to praise His everlasting dominion. Authority does not protect you from the hard correction of God. In fact, if anything, it makes you so much more vulnerable to it. This is why David in Psalm 2 says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. And here's, I think, Mary echoing that. Right? He's torn down the mighty from their thrones because they were neither wise nor did they hear the warning. This is what God does with proud men. Write it down. He warns them, and then if they persist, He knocks them down. Finally, verse 53, He's filled the hungry with good things. The rich He has sent away empty. What we see consistently in the Bible, actually, and I keep, I keep going broad picture Bible because that's what Mary's song is. It's a, it's a, I mean, Mary would have been, of course, raised in, in what we would call a thoroughgoing biblical education, right? Such that when she opens her mouth to sing, everything she has to say is an echo of some Old Testament scripture or psalm or another. And what we see consistently in the Bible is that God draws near to the disregarded and the needy. Because He knows that what will destroy us most significantly, human beings, is the conviction, the quietly attained conviction that we don't need Him. The worst kind of sin is, is not the most obvious kind often, but it is, it is the lowering of God to the level of, of disregarding. Right? So it, it, there, there's, you know, there's something respectable about rejecting God. At least that's a recognition of who, you know, who, who it is you're rejecting. But, but the quiet sort of forgetting about God, far more tempting, far more common and prevalent, far more destructive long term. You see, the warnings given to the rich throughout the Bible are not meant to make us believe that owning things is evil or that having money is evil. Rather, there is a temptation inherent to wealth that you will lose your sense of need, which you need. You need to have a sense of need before God. Very wealthy people, I mean, I'll give you some examples. Very wealthy people, especially if they're successful in, say, business enterprises, start making a lot of money, start experiencing a lot of effectiveness and a lot of growth, tend to lose their Sabbath rhythms. Right? Six days of work, one day of rest, worship with God's people, and so on. Why? It's because they lose their hunger. They lose their need. Many young people at university, and in a university environment, spiral into some horrible slavery, uh, slavery to sin. Why? Well, because they've lost their hunger. They might believe things about God, sort of knowledge, intellect, that kind of thing, but they don't believe they need the Lord. This is why we are called to have the faith of children. Not faith that is childish, not reveling in immaturity or, say, an ability to exercise self-control, an inability to exercise self-control, but children are needy. 
and they are trusting that their needs will be met. God only satisfies the hungry, right? If you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. So, so dear saints, be hungry for the things of God. Cultivate a hunger in your own heart by pursuit of God and His Word in prayer and song together. Be hungry to be with His people. Be hungry for the grace that He gives you in word, in prayer, at the table. Pride begins in the heart. It takes shape. Often it takes shape in vocation or work. And it ends with utter emptiness. Did you see, that was the arc of the last few verses, right? He says he knocks down the proud. Then she mentions the vocation of kings and authorities. And then ends with utter emptiness. The rich he has sent away empty. And so finally, the last point, God keeps His promises. We talked about God lifts up the humble. God knocks down the proud. God keeps His promises, most notably these two. Look at verse 54 as we move into the conclusion of the song. He has helped His servant Israel. Remember what she's saying. He's helped His servant Israel by putting the Savior, the Son of God, into my womb to be born. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. The the, the proud forget their need, right? The humble know their need, and God remembers His mercy. That, That is, God remembers what sort of God He has promised to be for us. Martin Luther believed that if there was one attribute of God that shined brightest throughout the whole Bible, it was mercy. So so what does the help of God look like? Did you hear Mary's words? He said he's helped his servant Israel. How has he helped them? By remembering his mercy. What kind of mercy is it? Look at verse 55. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. It's the kind of mercy he gave to our fathers. Okay? It's the kind of mercy he gave to Abraham and to Abraham's children forever. The song began with all generations calling Mary blessed. The song ends with the promise that God gives mercy and blessing to all the generations of Abraham's children. Why? Because God doesn't change and neither do the promises He's given. Our times, however, are always changing. Rulers, kingdoms, presidents, senators, always changing. Things of the earth, always changing. Trends, fashions, always changing. And that creates the temptation. When I look around, I see a bunch of changed stuff. So perhaps God is like that. It's very easy to get there. So perhaps our God changes with time. No. He remains what He's always been. That's part of why Mary mentions Abraham. He's still that same God. The one who remembers His mercy. The one who keeps all His words. And so yes, this means we must know those words in order to rejoice when He keeps them, right? We must know them like Mary did so that when it comes time to sing and to wonder what words we shall use, the words that come out of our lips are the very promises of God Himself for us and for our children. So that, a bit early on that one, can, I, can we, yeah, thank you. So, so 
to, to wrap this up, because in, in a moment we're going to start singing the song of Mary, and I want to tell you why we're going to sing it. We're going to sing it so that we don't forget that our God hides in stables and mangers. So that we don't forget that He turns evil and wicked rulers into servants, beasts of the field, and worm food. Power and authority in and of themselves are not evil things. Jesus claims them for Himself. He delegates them to whom He wills. From parents to princes, Jesus gives His authority to stewards. Some are faithful, some are not. But He exalts the humble, and He knocks down the proud. And I think we are living in a day where we are being humbled. I think maybe the better word would be humiliated. A once richly blessed nation is now in majority overwhelming rebellion. A once richly blessed city even is dealing with economic stagnation. Violence, fear, retreat, and apathy. So I offer this to you to think on this week. I think especially during this season, but in all the weeks to come. There is perhaps, perhaps, no greater form of pride than the pride of cynicism and apathy. Oh, that's just how these things go, I guess. Stuff just goes from bad to worse all the time. Let's just show up for church, I guess, sing the songs we like, and then talk about how good life used to be. What? That is not the God you serve. He makes a virgin into the mother of the Son of God. He raises up those of low estate. He knocks down proud rulers off their thrones. Consider well your cynicism and your apathy, because it might be blasphemy under another name. And so in a moment, we'll sing Mary's song, and I hope that we will learn to sing it year-round, not just during Advent or Christmas. It's packed too full of what we must remember year-round. Go ahead and put that back up. Luther, Martin Luther said that Mary's song was about the great works and deeds of God for the strengthening of our faith, for the comforting of all those of low degree, for the terrifying of all the mighty ones of the earth, we are to let the hymn serve this threefold purpose. For she sang it not for herself alone, but for us all to sing it after her. Therefore, let us sing. In the name of Jesus, amen. And so, our Father, we thank you for your servant, our sister Mary thanking you for blessing her. And indeed, may we again call her blessed. Blessed for seeing clearly the goodness of you, our Father, in raising up the lowly and the humble, in knocking down the proud. Things that we know are righteous, but know that we're also powerless to bring about. But indeed, you are and you keep all of your promises rooting our hope and trust there. Strengthen us as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.